Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Shabbat, daf Samach Bet 62. Um, this was one of another one. We keep having these dafim where Yardena and I say beforehand, like, what can we possibly talk about here? Because not because there's not enough, but because there is so darn much. Thank God. Um, we are going to be skipping topics that we think are valuable and necessary to pay attention to because we have designed this to be brief. Uh, so we recommend that even if you are the kind of person who does not primarily look at the daf inside, we recommend this daf as one that bears your perusal. Okay, I want to mention before we even delve into the most of this stuff that at the top of the daf, we have this clarification of, of terms that I read out in the Mishnah from two, three days ago, Shiryon, Chazda, and Magafayim. And I like that the Gemara comes, the Gemara comes and defines them for us and says very specifically, these are items of armor, right? One is male, you know, the, the, like a knight's armor with scales. And one is the Kazda is the leather hat that's worn under the helmet. And Magafayim are his leg armor that comes from beneath the knee, which lines up nicely with the modern Hebrew term of boots. Um, and then the Gemara doesn't talk about this anymore at this time. It simply just provides us with the definitions. For those who don't know the Mishnaic terms, the Gemara is going to give you definitions. I appreciate that. It's very helpful. And I find it interesting that this is not the place of further discussion of these armor issues. Again, to note, the context of the Mishnah was that these items are not to be worn on Shabbat because they are considered carrying, because they are armor. They are not, they are not clothing. Okay, this brings us to our new Mishnah, and this will send us into a few different directions. A woman cannot go out carrying a, a needle, right? That would be a needle with an eye. Um, and not a signet ring where you can make a seal with it. Right, so each of these things uh, is going to be discussed further in the context of the Gemara. Um, but the last one is not with a flax of balsam oil. So I'm going to discuss this out of order in, in a moment. I want to just finish the, the Mishnah. Um, and there's much more to be discussed from this Mishnah, but I want to focus on this balsam oil in, a, in just one moment. If she does go out carrying these things or wearing carrying these things, she's obligated to bring a chata. And the chachamim... Um, do not require her to bring that korban, that sacrifice, because they say that these items are, in fact, you know, ornaments. They are things that she might wear, and therefore it's not considered carrying. Okay. Now, when we jump down the page, we'll come back up the page. Yardena is going to talk about a little bit what's going on here then. But I want to just get to this point of what's going on with this balsam oil. And the concern is that in the time, in the week not exactly the wake, some years have passed, but in the wake of the destruction of the temple, there's great concern that people not do things that make them happy unless they forget, as it were, the destruction of the temple, right? So, for example, that's, this leads to things, practices today that include smashing a glass at a wedding or in some circles, the Khatana bridegroom will wear ash on his forehead it, it involves not having music at certain times of the year, but also not certain places and so on, right? There's a lot of discussion of this. Um, the 
the looming absence of the Beit HaMikdash, of the temple. So the Gemara says as follows. Um, so the Gemara, the I'm sorry, there's a brighter that cites Rabbi Lezer, who says you can go out carrying these things, right? And the Gemara answers, Lo kasha ha kikai ad Rabbi Meir, ha kikai ad Rabbanan. It says, well, some of these items we're going to say Rabbi Lezer would exempt her from going out with that herbs or the or the balsam oil, right? Why is that okay? Well, we can say that he's holding like who does he hold like? Rabbi, like Chachamim. Kikai ad Rabbi Meir da Amar Chayev Chatat, Amar Ihu Patur, Kikai ad Rabbanan da Amar Patur, Aval Asur, Amar Ihu Mutar Lechatzila. But still permissible to do to begin with. Why? Why is this relevant? How does this fit in? And the answer is that the this balsam oil did not have its connection to the Beit HaMikdash. So then there was no, there was no prohibition of it for the joy that it might have brought. So I mentioned this. I don't want to I don't want to belabor the point too much because Yerdana has a meaty topic to jump into, but I just want to note the prevalence of the Beit HaMikdash in this era and where even such a thing as like whether it's a flask that you're carrying is going to be considered a violation of the your terms, let's say, of of when how are you supposed to conduct yourself? And this is really about all times with regard to the absence of the Beit HaMikdash. You know, I, I find it very interesting. Okay, Yardena, take it away. So I'm going to continue on with the um, Gemara here. So the Gemara reads as follows. And again, remember, this mission is talking about things that are, you know, from Dil Raisa, biblically forbidden for women to wear on Shabbat, as opposed to, I think we've seen some other cases where it's things that you could wear from a rabbinic point of view, they didn't want you to carry it, but biblically it would have been okay. So Amar Ula, uh, Ula, our, our Amor comes and says, that the opposite is true with men. In other words, that these laws that are in this Mishma, Mishnah specifically apply to women and that they are biblically forbidden to women, um, but for men, they're rabbinically uh, forbidden so that it's exactly the opposite. Um, and right, we saw that with the question about the ring uh, with the signet. So, so we see this ruling about Ula. Why? Any item that's fit for a man, like any item that would be used as an accessory for a man, would not be used for a woman. Sorry, and any item that would be used for a woman, is not used for a man, right? So this is just a, they're explaining why Ula says this, right? So Ula reads this Mishnah. He wants to tell us that the opposite is true for a man, that for the items listed here, they are biblically forbidden for women to wear in Shabbat, only rabbinically for men. The items that are biblically forbidden for men to wear are rabbinically forbidden for women to wear. And the reason is, is because it's an accessory for a man is an accessory just for a man and not for a woman. And an accessory for a woman is only an accessory for a woman and not a man. So now the Gemara is going to object to this. Mativ Rabbi Yosef. Rabbi Yosef is going to challenge this uh, from a Bryce. What does the Bryce say? Haroim Yotzim Besakin. Shepherds can go out on Shabbat wearing um, sackcloth. So what is this uh, telling us? That shepherds would also, would wear 
some type of clothing that was like very thick so that it would keep rain out uh, while they were in the um, field. And they viewed this as like this was regular clothing for them um, and that they could wear this even on Shabbat, even if there wasn't like a threat of rain. They were just this was considered to be the regular clothing. Um, and the Chachamim didn't just say this about shepherds. Any person would be allowed to wear this. Let's say Bisakin. But the Mishnah only mentioned shepherds because this was a particular item of clothing that was uh, worn by shepherds. So what do we see from this Brisa? That here we have an item of clothing um, that uh, normally a shepherd would wear, right? But, you know, but we're going to apply the law to any man. So this would undo what Ula was saying, right? Because what was Ula trying to say? What men wear, they wear. What women wear, they wear. So the question this basically brings up is, why can't a man wear a ring without a seal um, on a biblical uh, level just because a woman is allowed to wear it? So the Gemara is going to answer as follows. Ella, I'm a Rav Yosef. So Rav Yosef says, Kasavar Ula, Nashim Ambipneim Atzmanheim. Ula holds that women are viewed as a nation unto themselves. And what does this mean exactly, right? Then any item that would be worn even by some men can be worn by all men, right? But the fact that a woman wears it, okay, um, doesn't cause it to therefore be permitted to men. Um, to me, I was very taken by this. And it particularly made me think about that story with Yal. She wasn't given that cup of wine. Uh, when it came to benching and her husband. And I don't know, I, I think this sort of reflects some sort of worldview that we sort of see about Ula, right? Ula really treats women in their own separate category. Men are in their own separate category. He does not like to mix them halachically. Um, so again, so the principle here that Rav Yosef wants to use to explain Ula is, Nashim am bifne atzman hey right? That they are their own nation. And what's true of men is not going to be true of women. And what's true of women is not going to be true of men. Okay. Now the Gemara is going to question this. Abaye challenges this. And here is how he challenges it. And very, very interesting. And I think what's interesting also is we're going to go also to like a totally different extreme of looking at something that we normally very traditionally look at as something women cannot do. And that's the proof that they're going to use. And the example they give is to, is to fill in. Let's say somebody finds a bunch of tefillin on Shabbat um, and it's either in a Rashud HaRabim or it's in a field or they, they find it. So what are they supposed to do? They basically wrap each pair. They put the pair on the tefillin shal yad, the tefillin shal rosh, the way that it's normally supposed to be worn. And they basically walk back till they get to a place where they can safely take it off. And if there were many of them, what the halacha is, is that the person would then go back and put on the second piece of the second pair of tefillin and then walk those back. So the idea is, is that first of all, there's a way to safely transport the tefillin because it's obviously an object that has meaning and value and we want to protect it if it was accidentally left. Um, but also the idea is we have to carry it in the way that it's normally worn. We're not allowed to just like gather a bunch of the tefillin. Let's say there were three or four pairs and just start carrying it. And here's the Chiddush here. This is true whether it's a man or woman who found them. So what we see from this brisa is what? That a woman is allowed, is allowed, right? From a Dil Raisa, from a biblical level, she is actually allowed to go and wear tefillin. Now, this wouldn't really make sense because normally we think of tefillin as well. 
and is something that only men have to wear. So the Gemara goes on and says, if you're going to say, like Ula said, that women are a separate nation, right? Who? That tefillin is a positive commandment that's time bound, right? So we know that mitzvot that are time bound, that can only be done at a particular time, okay? Women are not um, obligated to do, right? One of the famous ones being Kriyachma, right? But there's a whole host of them, and tefillin is one of them. The whole mitzvah asesha is man grama nashim piturot. And we know that all mitzvah asesha is man grama nashim are piturot from. So this story doesn't seem to make sense because if we're going to say that women are actually patur from doing uh, tefillin, which seems to be what the halachic uh, principle is, okay, um, then why, how could it be that women would be allowed to wear tefillin on Shabbat if it was considered to only be an accessory for men. So the idea is, is no, even women would be allowed to wear the tefillin because who cares that it's usually something that's worn by men? As long as it's worn by somebody, under certain circumstances, everybody can wear them. So that's what they're trying to tease out here. Now here's what's amazing. So how does the Gemara resolve this? Hatan, in this brisa, this brisa that it's talking about that a woman would be allowed to wear the tefillin on Shabbat, Kasaba Rabbi Meir. It's the opinion of Rabbi Meir who holds Lila's man tefillin who that tefillin was worn at night. The Shabbat's man tefillin who. And Shabbat was also worn, and sorry, and tefillin were also worn on Shabbat. Now, this is not how we actually, uh, you know, this is a particular opinion of Rabbi Meir. But if Rabbi Meir is going to hold that tefillin could be worn on at night and also could be worn on Shabbat, have lays mitzvah ase shaloh has man grama. Then actually tefillin is not a time-bound commandment. Because you wear it at all times. You wear it at the day, you wear it at night, and you even wear it on Shabbat. And we know that all positive that are not time-bound, women are chayab in. So herefore, what we're saying is, is no, a woman is allowed to wear tefillin according to the opinion of Rabbi Meir. Why? Because women were actually obligated in the mitzvah of tefillin. And that's why she would be allowed to sort of rescue this tefillin that was found on Shabbat because she actually participates in this mitzvah, according to Rabbi Meir, because it's not a mitzvah say shehazman grama. So that's how they try to explain it. That So I guess Ula can hold, as Ula holds, right, that women are nashim amdifne atzmanhe, that they can be viewed as a separate nation. But with the example of tefillin, there's a particular opinion of Rabbi Meir that actually would obligate women for tefillin. Now, I'm going to, you know, uh, confess here, and Anne, I think you'll, you'll confess too. We both read this Gemara, and we were like, huh, we actually have not seen this before. And both of us have learned pretty extensively uh, the whole Indian of Mitzvah Man Grama and how it relates to women and tefillin. And we did spend a little bit of time. This Gemara is actually going to appear again in a Reuven, this opinion of Rabbi Meir. And I think what we want to point out here is, look, the accepted halachic opinion is, is that women do not wear tefillin. And that really comes from a Maharam, uh, a, a medieval uh, Rabbi Mayer uh, of Rotenberg, who says that the reason why women don't wear tefillin is because they can't keep their bodies clean the way that they need to be clean. Now, I don't think that's meaning, you know, that they were physically dirty, but I think it means women were busy probably in the kitchen and preparing things. And, you know, they probably were responsible for more of the housekeeping things and they just weren't, you know, you really have to be clean in a particular way. I always wonder when I do see those types of things is observation that's there to explain why is it that women aren't doing something that it would seem, at least from the pages of the Gemara, 
maybe they could possibly be obligated in. So therefore, you know, Rabbi Mayor Me Ruttenberg has to give a explanation for why not wearing tefillin. So I just wanted to point out this interesting Gemara. I don't think it's a Gemara that gets quoted often. Again, the prevailing halachic opinion is, is that women do not wear tefillin. But we do see very clearly that Rabbi Mayer has this opinion that actually women would be obligated in tefillin because it is not a mitzvah to say shazman grama. It is not actually a time-bound mitzvah. Um, I would just, uh, I think, um, I always thought that the cleanliness issue pertained to Nida. So I'm not sure, I you know. But it was always my impression. I will just add that Aliza, Doctor, I think Doctor Aliza Berger has an article about women wearing tefillin. In I always call it the Purple Book, which I mean, don't, no disrespect. The cover of the book is purple. It's called Jewish Legal Writings by Women. It's an anthology of essays on halachic topics written by women, um, and I would say that's probably the most thorough um, discussion of the sources on women wearing tefillin. I'm certain that this gemara is in there. Uh, the fact that I have read the article and don't remember it. Um, I, I don't want that held against me because I read it really a long time ago. Um, but um, it's if you're interested in this topic, that is the place to begin. Um, okay, I want to just talk about one other thing on the DAF, and I'm actually going to talk, I want to talk about it. Um, it's in the same section of what I was talking about before, but it's so completely divorced from it in terms of my point, as follows. There's a, we're going to call this a what's what. There's a phrase in the Gemara that's called chisure mechsara. And the key term there is chaser, chaser, right? That something is lacking. And it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon to me when it happens in the Gemara. What happens is there's a, the Gemara quotes something. It quotes a bright eye, it quotes a statement, whatever. And then something doesn't make sense. And then the next passage comes to make sense of the previous passage. And its resolution is to say, meaning the text that you have is lacking some of the words that it's supposed to have, lacking, right? Something is lacking. And then it comes to fill in those words and now everything can be, making, can be made sense, can, can make sense, pardon me. Um, I, this is the way it works, right? So the fact that we have an example of it here, it's truly, it's a matter of it being an example rather than the specifics of it, the specifics of it, Go back to the section that I was talking about before. I mean, come forward to this discussion of what I was talking about before, where again, these are the items that a woman cannot go out with on Shabbat. Omai Rabbi Meir, Shabiada. A woman cannot go out holding onto a key, which is a whole other discussion, which pertains to anybody who's ever tried to carry a key on Shabbat in a place that doesn't have an air if it gets very complicated. And then the Gemara says, Kovelet, Mandakarshma. One second, the Kovelet is a bundle of fragrant herbs. Who mentioned anything about that? Like, why are we talking about that here? And then the Gemara says, This is what it should say. It's basically rereading the previous text, um, the Tanaitic text, and like allowing the terms that seem to have been jumped over, which makes the text make no sense whatsoever, um, unless you fill them in in your head, it fills them in explicitly and tells you that the text was truncated in some way. Now, why is this important? Uh, there's, I think, an impulse to treat Gemara text similar to biblical text, right? Where we don't, we're not going to, 
I don't know. I would I would be very hard pressed to say, oh well, the biblical text was just truncated somewhere, and let's add in a few words, right? That's not how I approach Torah, meaning the Torah Shabbatav. But when it comes to the biblical, the excuse me, the Talmudic text, the Gemara itself has emendations all over the place. The Gemara itself comes and addresses the correct formulation of the text. When you look at a Daf Gemara, when you look at, I don't mean in Safaria or, or in English, but if you look at the traditional Vilna Shas, you'll see there are all kinds of bracketed letters and numbers, whatever, that take you to side commentaries where part of what they're doing is quote unquote fixing the text. Now, one of the reasons the Gemara is handled that way with a footnote as it were, or even not as, as a word, these really are footnotes. Part of the reason is to make sure that the original truncated text, let's say, or a thing that needs abridgment or elaboration or expansion still remains there. We don't correct the text to, the, to, to remove whatever thing is giving the commentator pause, right? Rather, the commentator makes a footnote and says, this term should really be that term. Instead of it being, you know, Ba cheder, it should be ka cheder or whatever, right? Meaning, I've made that example up, but my point is that letters that apparently switch, you know, if a but and a kaf and they look very similar, it's very easy for a comment to say, you need the other one here, or you need to add in, you know, the word low. That's always the most important one, right? If you add in the word not, and suddenly the meaning is completely different. This case is very specific. means that the exact same phrase is lacking one or two or however many words seem to be lacking and it reinserts it and the Gemara moves on and and so do we but um i my point here is just that the talmudic text i think we re- regard it as holy and i think we regard it as critical in the formulation that it is and that doesn't mean all of that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to the wording and when the wording seems to be off or missing or whatever we don't even have to be the ones to say that because all kinds of people have been paying attention for many generations and they've already done so. That's what this means. I, look, I think this also reflects that we're dealing with a text that used to be oral and um, and obviously was probably memorized in some way. So it's easier to memorize less words and it probably was better understood by people. You know, the way we create mnemonics for ourselves when we study for a test. Um, so I think like we see these types of things that appear in the Gemara that really make it clear to us, you know, that it is a, um, that this actually was a, you know, an oral text that later got written down. That's our dot for the day. You can find us on all major podcasts. Please rank us, review us. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, If you have a comment or an insight you want to share on today's episode, please share it with us on our Facebook page. And until tomorrow's DAF, go and learn.